And I, I appreciate Mark's sermon title um, tonight as well. Uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the de deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord. In my heart, I'm applauding him for getting through all those names. You might understand, yeah. Well, before we dive into this text, just a, um, just a note or two first. If you were not here this morning, I thought Pastor Jamie's exposition on Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 just so far reaching, so searching. I want to encourage you, if you were not here, go and listen to it online. Number one, well-worn path. Number two, lay aside encumbrances. Number three, this life, this pilgrimage is more like a marathon, not a sprint. That is the race of the Christian life. And then fourth, we do not run independence upon our own resources. Yeah, so I really commend uh, that to you if you were not here this morning. As we pray for a moment, I'd like us to particularly remember Brother Jonathan's father, Tack Owe, and his mother, Lana, down noon in Georgia. I think he went back in the hospital yesterday. And so as we go to the throne of grace one more time, um, even thanking, thanking the Lord for little Theodore Quinney McReynolds, and, um, but also remembering our brother. Let's go to the throne of grace if we can. Father, thank you for 
the great privilege, the joy, the serious, sober joy of gathering together as your people, singing songs and hymns, hearing your word read, recounting your goodness to us. And we pray knowing the Apostle John's words that everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is born of God. And we pray that that would be true as an expression of faith of every man and woman, of every boy and girl in this gathering tonight. We too give you thanks this week for the mercy of allowing Annika to give birth and have little Theodore Quinny safely here. And we thank you that you've now given them two little boys, Eddie and Theodore. So we thank you for them. We pray that they would do well as she heals up. We pray for our brother, this esteemed good man, Tak Owe, for him, for Lana, that you would sustain him, that he would get the care that he needs. And we ask, oh, Father, that you'd give him many years and that you would, you might be pleased to bring him back to full health and that you would allow him as much time, fruitful time, that he'd be full of sap and very green. He'd be like an a tree planted by, tree, by streams of water. This is our prayer. We pray for grace. We also tonight pray uh, for our friends, Larry and Bonnie Seacrest, even as they are planning these medical mission trips to uh, Peru uh, in, with local churches there in Chiglayo in the area of Juarez up in the high Andes. We ask for their work that their work in caring for people's physical needs would be a ramp to sharing them the news of a son who has come, the great God-man who's come to give life and to save. So hear us now, be with us as we open your word. We ask it for the sake of Christ, amen, amen. Well, even, I'm, I wanted to mention the uh, Seacrest, so they've moved to Greenville, I think they're part of another church, but they are included for today, December 3rd, in our Reformed Baptist Network Missionary Prayer Guide. Every month, near the end of the month, we print a number, we stick them out here, I think, is that right, Brittany? Out here, and we don't want to fill up your bulletin, but I want to encourage you as a couple, as a single, it doesn't matter, as a family, to work through these by, you'll be lifting these uh, missionaries up to the Lord, but also, I think, cultivating a heart for God's work um, in the nations. Um, I want to read on the back of this, there's a quote by Richard Sibbs, the great English Puritan. He says this of prayer, when we shoot an arrow, we look to the fall of it. When we send a ship to sea, we look for its return. And when we sow seed, we look for a harvest. So likewise, when we sow our prayers through Christ in God's bosom, shall we not look for an answer and observe how we speed? It is a seed of atheism, he writes, to pray and not to look how 
We speed. But a sincere Christian will pray and wait and strengthen his heart with promises out of the word and never leave praying and looking up till God gives him a gracious answer. Brothers and sisters, let's pray as his people. Well, we come tonight to a new series and we'll be in four different texts over these four weeks. Many of you know if you're older, it doesn't apply to all of you, that about 46 years ago in 1977, a very curious man, Alex Haley, uh, wrote a movie. It, it ended up a series, I think, of six or eight episodes called Roots, the saga of an American family. And he traces the story of one of his ancestors, um, a young 15-year-old African from West Gambia. And he follows his story as a boy all the way when he's captured by slave traders and brought to from Africa and living as a slave here in the United States. And it was Alex Haley looking back to his ancestors that was so keenly interested in his roots, what we may formally call our ancestry. So kids, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you have roots. And I most, most of the time, for many of you, all you're really used to is parents, grandparents, and maybe some of you have great parent, grandparents that are alive, but that's about it. You have roots. There are those that came before you. And maybe you're interested in asking, that's why places like Ancestry.com has flourished, and we want to get our DNA checked, right? It's really the question is, who came before me? Where did I come from? Where, or who were my grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents? What were their names? How did they get to this country? Where did they live? How did they live? What were their lives like? And how did I come to live where I live now? This is really all a question of roots. And together we see, even as Ben read here, these first 17 verses in Matthew 1, we see that the New Testament, Matthew's gospel, opens with what some of us might find really, really boring. But God in wisdom has included these long lists, these genealogies in our Bible. What you might call the lineage, right? Our line, the ancestral record of Jesus Christ. In fact, Matthew writes, he opens his book with this expression, the book, the biblos of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you've ever thought about that, that is the very first phrase of the entire New Testament. And make no mistake, Jesus, his ministry, his life, his death, his incarnation, his resurrection, his ascension, his person and work as the Christ, the Messiah, he is the great subject and focus of the Gospels, of the preaching and writing of the Apostles, of the whole of the New Testament, and of the whole Bible. D.A. Carson says this about the message of the Bible that he summarizes in 221 words. Tim Challies excerpts it. 
D.A. Carson writes, in the fullness of time, his son comes and takes on human nature. He comes not in the first instance to judge, but to save. He dies the death of his people. He rises from the grave, and in returning to his heavenly Father, he bequeaths, that's a fancy word, forgives. He gives the Holy Spirit as the down payment and guarantee of the ultimate gift that he has secured for them. An eternity of bliss in the presence of God himself in a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So what's the big idea of our message? It really connects to D.A. Carson's words. He has come, therefore we have hope. Some of you might know that there used to be this description. There's probably a current one of what we call the seven wonders of the world. Many, many years ago when the Houston Astrodome as a sporting venue was first built, it was called one of the seven wonders of the world. But the hope that we have in the incarnation, I say, is one of the great hopes of the gospel, right? In a world that's dark, that's under the curse and misery of sin, without hope, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, to connect it with the, with the, the Jewish expectation. It is this one, Jesus Christ, who has come, and therefore, we have hope. If you've ever seen someone whose countenance is completely flat and fallen because they no longer have hope, they have not yet really been able to embrace what the psalmist is even calling us to in Psalm 42 and 43 when the psalmist preaches the gospel to himself by saying, my soul, why are you in despair? Like, why is it that you're growling inside? He says, hope in God for you will yet praise him. And friends, it's in this gospel and at the starting point at the incarnation that you may have hope, not only for this life, but also for the life to come. And in a sense, the hope of the advent that the Son of God has come and in John's words has tabernacled among us, literally set his Pitch. He's, he's, he's pitched his tent, taking on human nature minus the sinfulness that has ruined ours. It's the sheer, unadulterated, pure, bright white of everlasting hope. And it's good news that cannot be taken away from us. I was telling Cheryl, and I don't understand this. I can only explain. I tell Cheryl, I had this dream this morning that I was riding in a bus in Beijing, China with the coach of the Georgia Bulldogs. This was this morning. I, this is a true story. And, we, and I was supposed to be preaching at Beijing Baptist Church. I did not have my cell phone with me. And the coach was driving us through all these areas that were under construction in Beijing. I did not have my phone. 
and I was chatting him up about all things football, but I'm realizing there's no way, I, I don't know the number of the deacon that's at the church, but we need someone to handle the service, okay? And I was in this like dream of despair. How am I gonna resolve this? And I woke up. Don't ask me how that happened, okay? And some of you are thinking, I'm in a despair for which there's no hope. But here's the good news about the hope of the gospel and the incarnation. It can never, ever be taken away from you. That, in fact, is what Jesus says to Mary and Martha. He says to Martha of her sister Mary, when Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet in Luke 10, she's chosen the better part which will never be taken away from her. You see, the advent, the appearing, the incarnation of the Son of God brings humanity and it brings us this real solid hope that all that went wrong in the garden when shalom was so violently shattered might one day finally be made right. And we who by our rebellion broke rank with our creator in spite of all his goodness and his kindness and his generosity toward us might find in the gospel the potential to be reconciled and forgiven and brought near because of the Son of God who has literally clothed himself. He has wrapped himself in this garb of our humanity. This is the message of the Bible, and this is really good news. So just three words tonight as you think of these 17 words. Just three words. And if you're taking notes, I want you to think about this. Fact is the first word. Fulfillment is the second word. And faith is the third word. Fact, fulfillment, and faith. To fact. Jesus Christ's incarnation is given to us in the word as a matter of solid, verifiable, historical fact. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul picks up on that theme with respect to our Lord's death, his burial, and his resurrection. Jesus' birth, his ancestors, his parents, and that he was principally to be introduced and is introduced to us right here in Matthew 1, verse 1, as the son of David, the son of Abraham, all point to nonfiction, not fiction, to what is true, not what is false. Now, by itself, and kids, this is very important, for you simply to think and believe that as a matter of history and what's true, in the same way you can touch your nose on your face, and you know, I know right now that's, my, that's not your nose, this is my nose. I can feel it, okay? These are my ears, and they're not yours. And as much as that's my nose and those are my ears, for you to even think that Jesus Christ was 
born and lived and died by itself is not saving faith. Do not confuse those two. That's important. I can believe that this stool, and you can believe that this stool will support you if you sat on it. But until you sit on it, you haven't really shown that you believe it. So as we think about this series in the incarnation, don't confuse believing the facts that Jesus came and trusting in what he accomplished when he came to be the same thing. They're not. But the Bible and all of history point to and they confirm the solid fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with his human parents, Joseph and Mary, came and took on human flesh. Paul addresses this most beautifully and almost in theological art form in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves which Christ did. And the Christ was born to a woman named Mary who was betrothed to a man named Joseph who was from Nazareth of Galilee. And Matthew, as a Jewish convert, in fact, he's referenced, if you want to make a note of this, in Matthew 9, all right, he speaks of himself here in the third person, as he says, 9, 9, Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him, whom we believe to be the writer of the gospel of Matthew. And so it's Matthew, as a Jewish convert, writing with this Jewish audience in mind, and get this, most of whom were illiterate, living in an oral world, not so much where everybody had the ability to read and write, He's writing, though, with them in mind, and he wastes no time in connecting Jesus Christ with his ancestry. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? And he goes back in time, only then to start later and come forward. Son of David, son of Abraham, and then he does in three sets of 14 those generations. Because of Matthew's purpose, this is not an exact genealogy, but one that's crafted into three sets of 14 as a literary device. We call it gematria. You don't need, it's not a big deal, but I want you to understand this. He's writing here on a legal basis and not on a general, on a natural basis with this genealogy. It would be like saying... After singing a hymn written by Fanny Crosby, and you know that you're related to her, I am her great, 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 great granddaughter. Okay, that might be true. Maybe some of you are the great, 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 great granddaughter of the hymn writer Fanny Crosby. Okay? And it might be true, but you're leaving out a whole bunch of ancestors in between and not naming them. Okay? Or even if you said, I'm the descendant of Fanny Crosby. And we wouldn't indict you for lying or falsifying the truth, but you only noted Fanny Crosby because it suited your purpose. And so it was with Matthew as he gives his begats, like when you use the King James Version. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, 
so-and-so. In fact, Andrew Peterson, some of you know, wrote this song, Matthew Begats, about this very passage. I almost asked Wesley this week to try to learn how to play it real quick, but I thought, and you still could in coming weeks. That'd be great. And that's why Matthew's record and Luke's record are not the same. So, right, two gospel writers with two different purposes in mind. And so, Matthew, as a Jewish convert and disciple, he is starting with Abraham, and he comes forward with two points, actually three points, David, or Abraham, David, and then the deportation, whereas Luke, in showing the humanity of our Lord, is tracing him back all the way to Adam. So you ask, how was he the son of Abraham? In Genesis 12, 3, the promise to Abraham was that in you, this word comes to Abraham from the Lord, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3 that the promise made to Abraham and his offspring was referring not to many, but to one who is Christ. That seed is Christ. And yes, there's multiple horizons. And as we read our Bibles, we need to understand that. On a level, what, what is the Lord saying to Abram there in Genesis 12? It actually comes true. That Abram's descendants, his seed, is an offspring so numerous that it's more than the stars in the sky. It's more than the, 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 the grains of sand on the seashore. But in a terminal point, that seed, that offspring, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is he the son of David? This is a theme that's picked up by Luke. The angel Gabriel was sent to a virgin. We read this is in Luke 127. He was sent to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the household of David. Paul says in his, in a, in his introduction to Romans chapter 1, verse 2, he speaks of Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. Paul, in his last letter to Timothy, writes in 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. You might notice in chapter 1 of Matthew, in verse 16, something that's very important grammatically. It says, in Jacob, the father of Joseph, the son of Mary. There's the last, right? The last man, the father. So all of this is so-and-so begat or became the father of, right? What you see, Abraham was the father of Isaac. There's a verb in the middle. It's fine to say, and Abraham, Abraham fathered Isaac. There's a verb. But at this end, there's not. Jacob became the father of Joseph, the first part of verse 16, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Joseph, as we look here as a matter of fact, 
was the earthly man that served as the father of our Lord Jesus. But we know, as we'll see in a couple of weeks in the rest of chapter 1, what's conceived in her, verse 20, is from the Holy Spirit. And so as a, as a miracle, this incarnation, Mary, what's conceived in her, there's something that's done with her body, with the Holy Spirit, without Joseph and Mary coming together in, a, in, a, in, a, in sexual intimacy, and God gives life to this one who is called Christ. I don't know about you, but I've wondered, did Jesus look like Joseph? I don't know if you've thought about that. If he didn't have physically the contribution of Joseph's DNA, then who or what did the Lord Jesus look like? But the point here in Matthew's gospel, as we think of this word fact, is that yet both of these, both Joseph and Mary, are of the household of David. They're on the line of David, all right? And uh, of course, what's happening here in Matthew 1 is the genealogy, the lineage, the ancestry here is legal. That's where there's actually a few generations missing. And that's not an error. Matthew here is trying to use this three sets of 14 as a literary device of balance. But he's not, it, that's why it doesn't fully match what you have in Luke, but that's not even his purpose. But as a matter of fact, here's the first point. Jesus Christ has come into the flesh. The second point is simply fulfillment. Fact and fulfillment. Here it is. Jesus Christ's incarnation is the discernible fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We're talking the whole of his life, his ministry, his sufferings, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Nothing here is accidental, but it's purposeful. It's the fulfillment of prophetic prediction. What God purposed, he predicted through the mouths of the, or, and the writings of his prophets. And what he predicted, he fulfilled. Not one word was lost. Turn with me where we were a few, I think maybe a week ago, Luke 24. And Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. And it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then Luke records his words in verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You know the axiom. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. This is why Jesus took the word, the law of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, and he showed how they spoke about things concerning himself. And so when you see this language back in Matthew chapter one, 
when you see the language of fulfillment, look there in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, 14 about God with us. Emmanuel, the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son. And then look chapter 2, verse 5. They told him, right? In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, right? This is how they're answering Herod the king. And they quote from Micah 5, verse 2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Turn the page. Look there in chapter 2. After they flee for safety to Egypt, right, because of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream. Look at verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He quotes from Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then look right below that, verse 17, chapter 2. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. And if you're wondering, at the end of chapter 2, it says, verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. If you're wondering what's going on there, there's no direct promise found that that would be the case in the Old Testament. But maybe there's some wordplay. Matthew Henry explains it this way, and it makes sense when you take Isaiah 11 and a quote from the book of Judges about Samson. In this word, Nasser. He says, the town of Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament and no such prophecy can be found there. He says, this vague expression through the prophets may be due to Matthew seeing a connection between Nazareth and certain texts, Isaiah 11, and, and, and texts about Samson in the book of Judges, in which there are words with a remote similarity to the name of that town that is Nazareth. But what do you find here? You not only find faith, or you not only find this word fact, but you find fulfillment. And of course, we have the benefit of reading our Bible background. But there's one more thing, and that is faith. Jesus Christ's incarnation is embraced only by saving faith. You see, there are those that might concede. They might say that the evidence is there and they can affirm and they would not in agreement that is a matter of historical and verifiable fact, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, lived and died 33 years in this period of time which even our dating is based on, right, B.C. and A.D. But they might do that, and you and I might do that without really possessing a saving faith in the Son of God because it's God's gracious gift. But I want to help us move there in these last five moments. Fix your eyes on Matthew 1 for a moment. 
Only God could do this. Only God could write this story. He's the son of Abraham. Was not was this not the pagan that's introduced to us in Genesis eleven twenty seven, who really the whole sum of their existence, what was so meaningful was that his wife Sarah was barren. She had no children or no child. And they had 12 sons. You know with this whole program of promises about uh, an offspring in a, in a land, uh, a, a, a land that was flowing with milk and honey and making his name great and that rather than being cursed, he would be a blessing and all the peoples of the world would bless themselves in him from those first three verses of Genesis 12. There's Abraham. How amazing that there's Judah in verse three. And you may know his story from Genesis 38. He has a wife and then he has a son. One of his sons marries, married to Tamar, but the son dies. The other brother is not willing to fulfill his responsibility within the family to give that woman, Tamar, children. And so, in both an act of the father-in-law, Judah, and the daughter-in-law, Tamar, in effect, taking matters into their own hands, he, not knowing that's her, she plays the harlot. She's a prostitute. And he, this father-in-law, this ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ, fathers by his daughter-in-law, this man Perez right there, and another, right, in verse three. Have you ever thought about the sadness that that's experienced here. Look in verse five. There's Rahab. She is the Gentile harlot. There's another harlot, another prostitute who comes to the rescue in, in the book of Joshua and who's mentioned in the hall of fame and of faith in Hebrews 11. There's Ruth. Look at Ruth there in verse five, these women who was left a widow. She was what you would have called a pagan. But there's her mother-in-law, Naomi. And for whatever reason, she's not willing to abandon her mother-in-law. But she basically says, what you got, I got. Your people are my people. Where you go, I'll go. And it's through that devotion and following her mother-in-law that she meets this kinsman, Redeemer Bo Boaz. And it's Boaz then with this little baby, Obed, and then Jesse, who we read about, right, in the book of 1 Samuel, becomes the father of this one who slayed Goliath the giant. Did you realize that when you look at verse six, if you weren't aware of the Old Testament, it says David was the father of Solomon by the wife 
of Uriah. And you're thinking, oh, did Uriah just die? And so David remarried uh, Uriah's widow, Bathsheba? No. Here's God intervening. And John Calvin speaks of this, even as he speaks of Judah and Tamar taking actions into their own hands. And even there for David, in an unguarded moment where he sees Bathsheba, and he gazes on, and he wants her beauty. And there's all this that's taking place. You're not aware of this, that there's sin. And even in David's case with Uriah, not only does he want her and take her, but then he engineers Uriah's death that he might have what he wants. As you look at this, you see then he fathers Solomon. And you can follow down the names of these kings to recognize there's great history and there's dark history. There's even the dark, dark years of the crushing of God's people and they're taken off chains and fetters and exiled to Babylon. And Matthew sets this all up as we think about these starting points of Abram and David and the exile and all the way to this Galilean couple betrothed to one another from Nazareth who end up and Bethlehem. It's a lot more than poinsettias and wreaths and green and red and ornaments. It requires faith that's God's gracious gift to receive this son who was born to Joseph and Mary. But as we read in verse 16, it was of whom Jesus was born. We'll see more of this in in coming weeks. But there's nothing, there was nothing, absolutely nothing extraordinary. He was one baby on that day, born in a manger. This was no Patewood. This was not Prisma. This wasn't St. Francis Women's and Children's Hospital, the Son of God, the Word become flesh, full of grace and truth. He's born to this really couple that we might have said may never have been known, just one of any number of couples born in a little backwater town in Galilee who because of bureaucracy, had to make this trip and go register. And so they did to Bethlehem of the house of David. They came. Look there. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, was called Christ. That's Greek for Messiah, the anointed one. 
His incarnation is a matter of verifiable historical fact. But kids, you remember something that we illustrated with a stool. For you simply to remember that Jesus was born and he became the great God-man, God who robed himself in human flesh. He became what he never was without ceasing to be what he always had been. His incarnation is given to us as a matter of solid, verifiable fact. But that does not equal faith. But second, fulfillment. His incarnation was the discernible fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew gives this to us. Really in a way that's only rivaled, I think, by Peter and Paul and their preaching, particularly in the book of Acts. And then finally, faith. Jesus Christ's incarnation is embraced only by saving faith, which is the gracious gift of God. There's a reason. And when the old, old apostle John says in 1 John, he says, everyone that confesses that Jesus Christ came into the, in, in, how's he write it? Into, into the flesh is born of God. Have you ever thought of the symmetry to that? He's saying, everyone who says that Jesus has been born of God and has come into the flesh is in fact himself born of God. It's to that new life that if you've never come, you want to come. You know what to pray? If you're a kid, you know what you want to pray for Christmas? You want to pray that you receive the very best gift of all, and that's the Son of God who came into this world, as D.A. Carson says, not to judge, but principally to give you and me life in his name. Amen.